Amen. So, as, as believers, as followers, followers of Christ, what should we think about when we look around this world and we're just daily inundated with evil? I know how discouraging it can be, right? When, as we, we look out at the news or we, we look around us and we just see increasing perversions of God's ways. What should we think about that? <laughs> And not only as we look out and see evil outside of us in in this world, as we ourselves daily struggle with sin. I I know we we grow weary of just having this this heart that is so prone to wander, right? We love the Lord Jesus, we we want to bring glory to him, but yet we still find ourselves too easily distracted, too easily enticed by the sinful things in this world and and again, that struggle gets wearisome. And so, like God's people throughout the, the centuries, we, we often think or even maybe say, how long, O Lord? How long are we going to have to deal with sicknesses? How long are we going to have to live in such an evil world? How long are we going to have to battle even evil and temptations around us and, and in our own hearts? Well, I, I pray and trust that the message in Zechariah today will be an encouragement to you because it, it, it reminds us to be fixing our eyes on the Lord Jesus and, and to be reminded that God is sovereign and that he knows what is going on. He sees the evil. He sees our struggles. And he is doing something about it. And he will do something about it. That the Lord Jesus is coming back. And so that's kind of the thrust of, our, of the message today. And I'd ask you to turn in your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 5. We're doing a series through the minor prophet Zechariah. If you're using the black Bibles, that can be found on page 794. We're calling this series, The God Who Restores. Let me set the historical context for you. God, through the prophet Zechariah, is writing in the 6th century B.C. to God's people who are discouraged. They're even, many of them, despondent. They've given up hope. See, what the Jews had returned from exile under the judgment of God. They had been carried away to Babylon. Uh, Jerusalem and the temple had been destroyed by the Babylonians uh, some 70 years or so earlier. But now God has, according to his word, he's brought the exiles back to Jerusalem. And initially when they came back, they tried to rebuild the temple. But major problems and opposition caused them to abandon the project really before it ever got off the ground. And so now 16 years have passed since they first started trying to rebuild the temple. And and many of the returned exiles have given up, not only given up building the temple, but they've given up even trying to be distinct they're, they're like, you know what, let's just kind of assimilate into the, the secular world around us. And so the godly exiles, this, this remnant, they're, they're especially discouraged and losing hope. Would they ever be able to rebuild the temple? Would God ever once again dwell among them and with them? And again, what we've seen through our series in Zechariah is, is that it's into that discouragement, it's into that hopelessness 
that God sent his prophets, that God sent his word, Haggai and and Zechariah the prophets, and God gave Zechariah eight visions to communicate to the people. And if you're new to the Bible, or maybe you're not as familiar with uh, prophecy or apocalyptic literature, our text today may, may strike you a little strange at first, because there's a lot of, it's, it's symbolism. These are visions. It's not like reading a letter to a church in the epistles in, New, in the New Testament. It's not like reading the gospel accounts of our Lord Jesus, his life and ministry here on earth. No, these are visions. And, and what they are is they're, these visions symbolically declare truth. And again, to the people that Zechariah was originally writing to and that God was speaking to through Zechariah, these visions are actually proclaiming encouraging truths. So far, we've studied the first five of these, five of these visions, and we've seen through, from those that God was returning to them. Remember, that's what they were longing for. We're back in the land, but when will God come back with us? And he's told them through Zechariah, he is returning to them. He was going to restore them. By God's grace, he had forgiven them. He had removed the sin and guilt of the exile, and he had clothed them with his righteousness. God was with them, and he was going to enable them to rebuild the temple so that they can worship and serve God again. So these first five visions have been encouraging, and they have pictured God returning to his people. Right? Forgiving them, clothing them, enabling them to complete the temple. So we've seen that movement of God returning to his people. And now, today, we're going to study the last three visions, visions six through eight, and we're going to see encouraging movement in the opposite direction. Visions six through eight are going to show evil being judged and carried away from God's people. So God's returning to his people, and evil's going to be taken away from his people. As we have seen throughout our study of Zechariah, there is immediate application for uh, the hearers of Zechariah, for his contemporaries, those who were seeking to rebuild the temple there in the 6th century. But we've also seen that, like all of Scripture, it finds its ultimate fulfillment in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that will certainly be the case today. While these last three visions would be partially fulfilled in Zechariah's time, they will ultimately point us forward to specifically the second coming of the Lord Jesus. So the sermon outline and application will be pointing us to the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so maybe you've already noticed the title of the sermon this morning is King Jesus is Coming Back. King Jesus is Coming Back. The Lord Jesus, having risen triumphantly from the grave on that first Easter morning, is reigning now from the Father's right hand. That's where Jesus is now, in a glorified body. Fully God, fully man, reigning from the Father's right hand. And he has promised that one day he will return bodily, in power and great glory, as we sang. And when he returns, he will gather his own and he will judge his enemies. And so we're going to go through chapters 5 and 6 under four headings. Number one is wicked declared guilty. And again, with these headings, I'm ultimately pointing us ahead to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. So heading number one is wicked declared guilty. 
the, this uh, first vision that we're studying today, which is the sixth overall, is found in verses 1 through 4. So follow along, please, as I read there in chapter 5. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a flying scroll. And he said to me, what do you see? I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits, its width 10 cubits. Then he said to me, this is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. For everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what is on one side, and everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what is on the other side. I will send it out, declares the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name. And it shall remain in his house and consume it, both timber and stones. Now, as I read this, I've, my mind was drawn to, and I, maybe you've seen this at the beach, right? When you're, you're at the beach and you've got the planes going by, right? And they, they've got a big banner. They're, they're advertising some local restaurant or some local attraction, right? Well, Zechariah doesn't see a banner behind a plane. He sees a flying scroll in the air, a giant flying scroll in this vision. And we're told in verse 3 that that scroll is the word of God. Specifically, the angel tells Zechariah the scroll is the curse, which means it contains the curse of the Mosaic covenant, which is the covenant the people of God were under at that time. And you'll recall from what we've talked about this earlier that... um, God's covenant through Moses with the nation of Israel was a conditional covenant. We can read about that, uh, the blessings and curses at the end of Deuteronomy. The covenant promised blessings to them for obedience. When they obeyed God, they they would dwell in the land. God would be with them. Their crops and their families would prosper. But when they disobeyed God, when they were unfaithful to the covenant, when they ran after other gods, idols, and, and, and practiced injustice, and God, they would reap the curses of the covenant. God would depart from them. Uh, their, their, their crops would fail. Their, their families would fail. Their, they'd be conquered. And that's exactly what happened, again, under um, Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. So here in the vision, the scroll is the curses of the covenant. Because what God is dealing with, the injustice that's still present among the people of God there. At the time of Zechariah, the law of God, by and large, was not being enforced. Justice was not being upheld by the priests. Again, you know, they're kind of still in disarray, right? And so everyone's just kind of doing what is right in his own eyes. Jews were breaking God's laws, and they were appearing to get away with it. And so again, think about the godly exiles, the godly remnant there. They're thinking, how are we... How are we ever going to get reestablished here? How are we going to build this temple when so many of God's own people are sinning and getting away with it? It'd be like trying to, and maybe some of you have been in this situation. This is a silly example, but it'd be like trying to organize a game of baseball, right? When when everybody's just like, "Ah, I'm just going to, I don't care about your rules. I'm just going to do what I want to do, right? You're like, this isn't going to work. Only this here was much worse. This wasn't a game, right? People were committing crimes. They were breaking God's law. Notice they were stealing. They were swearing falsely. They were bringing great harm to the community of return to exiles. And nothing was being done about it. People were sinning against their fellow man. They were sinning against God. And it seemed like they were getting away with it. Does that sound familiar today? But the the news of this vision, the truth of this vision is justice is coming. 
Justice is coming. God saw what was happening, and he would do something about it. God would judge those who persist in breaking his word. Notice verse 4 says, the curse of the scroll is going to enter and completely destroy the houses of the guilty. And so what I pictured there was like, again, these guys who are guilty, these guys who are breaking God's law, they thought they were getting away with it, right? They were living high on the hog, you know? They were those who had, had stolen, right? You know, they're just in their homes, just kind of counting their money, just kind of enjoying, ha, 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 you know? Those who had sweared falsely, they're just living it up. Laughing at the trouble they've brought and maybe how they've prospered. They're in their homes thinking they're getting away with it. But they're not going to. Right? What does the scroll do? God's word. What does it do? God's justice. It comes and enters into their very houses and tears them apart. Destroys their houses. Timber and stones. They thought they could break God's word, but it was all about to come crashing down on them. God's judgment was about to come crashing down on them. God's justice would once again be established. The temple would be rebuilt. God's word would once again be taught and enforced among his people. And lawbreakers would be held accountable. So again, this Zechariah's hearers would, would be encouraged by this, right? They'd be assured that God's justice was coming soon. There would be judgment for breaking God's word. That the disobedient would be judged if they didn't repent. So it was a warning to them as well. So apply that to all of us today. Right? All of us today. Living in the 21st century. Well the Bible says that by nature we are all lawbreakers. By nature. Creation testifies to a creator. His commands are written on our conscience. Deep down we know there's a God. Each of you think about this in your own heart. Deep down, you know there's a God who made you. And you know that God deserves your allegiance. But what do we say by nature? I don't want to submit to that God. I don't want to thank him. I don't want to follow him. I want to be captain of my own life. We refuse Again, this is what the Bible says. This is not me saying this. The Bible says, by nature, we refuse to thank God, our creator. We refuse to worship him according to his word and through his son, Jesus Christ. See, it's, people will, will have a sense there's a God and they'll say, well, you know, I want God to be like this. And some nations do that by actually f- fashioning physical idols. Out here in the West, we're, we tend to be more sophisticated. We kind of just fashion God according to our thinking the way we want him to be but that's sin God will not conform to how we want him to be God says no you must worship me according to how I've revealed myself to be in my word and through my living word Jesus Christ So because of this disobedience, the Bible says we are by nature children of wrath, deserving. We're talking about the curse of God in this vision. The Bible says we all deserve the curse of God, the curse of eternal punishment separated from God in hell. But the good news of the gospel is that Christ, God in his love has sent Christ, and Christ has redeemed his people from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for them. Galatians 3.13. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, died on the cross, taking the curse of God that we deserved upon himself. 
And his death paid for our sins and satisfied God's holy wrath so that through faith in Christ, we could be forgiven and spend eternity with God in heaven. Because of Christ's death and resurrection, the Bible says not only that all who turn to him are saved, but also because of Christ's death and resurrection, the Bible says all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him, to Jesus Christ. Jesus now reigns as Lord from his throne in heaven, and one day he is returning to judge all mankind. That's why King Jesus is coming back. And so as I thought about that title, I thought about the different responses that would evoke. Right? I mean, that's a truth. King Jesus is coming back. And I thought about the different responses that might even evoke in a room like this today. For God's people, those who are saved, hearing that King Jesus, being reminded that King Jesus is coming back, that should fill us with joy, doesn't it? With hope, we're saying, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We want to see you and be with you forever and leave this this sinful world as it is. But for those who are not united to Christ in faith, those who have not bowed the knee to Christ... What kind of response do they have to the truth that King Jesus is coming back? Again, maybe some in the hardness of their heart is kind of indifference or unbelief, but when it actually happens, the Bible says there will be people who are terrified, terrified at his coming. Because when he comes again, he's not coming as a humble babe like he did the first time, right? He's coming in his glorified status, (laughs) in power and great glory, as the eternal second person of the Trinity, as the resurrected, glorified God-man to whom all authority has been given. He's coming as Lord of heaven and earth. And so if, when Jesus returns, if you're not part of his kingdom, you will be terrified because you will face his wrath. And we're going to see glimpses of that in, in the Visions to come today. And so the the good news of the gospel is that you can be rescued from his wrath. That King Jesus is a gracious and loving and forgiving king. And that today he's, he's holding off his return so that more people can be saved, so that more people can enter his kingdom through repentance and faith. And so I pray that if you don't know Jesus today, that you today will turn from your sins and place your faith in Christ alone. By faith, embrace him as Savior and Lord so that you can look forward to his return. Because the last book of the Bible, Revelation, actually, (laughs) we're going to see a lot of parallels today between Zechariah and Revelation The book of Revelation talks about another scroll in chapter 5. That the risen Lord Jesus alone is worthy to hold and to open up the seals. And those seals are his judgment. 
that's coming. And so escape the judgment of God and turn to Jesus today. He is a good king. He's a sinless, loving king. So we come to the next vision in verse 5, which I gave this vision the heading, Evil Eradicated Forever. The wicked are declared guilty, and now in verses 5 through 10, we see evil eradicated forever. Look at verse 5 with me. Then the angel who talked with me came forward and said to me, Lift your eyes and see what this is that is going out. And I said, What is it? He said, This is the basket that is going out. And he said, This is their iniquity in all the land. And behold, the leaden cover was lifted, and there was a woman sitting in the basket. And he said, This is wickedness. And he thrust her back in the basket and thrust down the leaden weight on its opening. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, two women coming forward. The wind was in their wings. They had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. Then I said to the angel who talked with me, where are they taking the basket? And he said to me, to the land of Shinar, to, a, to build a house for it. And when this is prepared, they will set the basket down there on its base. Again, Kind of, kind of strange, right? Symbolic vision here. In this vision, Zechariah sees a large basket. And in this basket is an idol shaped like a woman. And the idol is called wickedness. And so this idol represents the sin that's present there in the land of the people of Judah. The sin of the people of the land of Judah. Remember, that's what they were struggling with. You know, People are sinning and nothing's happening. Nothing's being done. Well, the scroll said God's justice is coming, and now we see what God's doing. He's going to remove that sin. He's going to purge the land from that, uh, purge the land of that sin. In verse 7, the phrase leaden cover, in Hebrew, it actually sounds like a wordplay with the mercy seat which covered the Ark of the Covenant. So there's kind of like a type and anti-type going on here, if you're familiar with those terms. Whereas, the, remember in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, the Lord was enthroned on the mercy seat. This woman is enthroned in the basket, which is kind of like an anti-Ark of the Covenant. The woman is retained with this lead weight in verse 8 so that she can't escape from the basket. The basket, is then, the basket with the woman is then carried away by these two winged female creatures to a house in the land of Shinar, to Babylon. So the vision pictures wickedness being removed from the land, transported to Babylon, where it will be judged. And so again, not only do we have this flow within Zechariah of the first five visions, God returning, and now these visions, sin leaving. But we also have uh, allusions to Ezekiel chapters 1 through 11, which happened before Jerusalem was conquered, right? This was pronouncing the coming judgment on them of when Babylon would, would destroy the temple. And in Ezekiel 1 through 11, the vision talked about the Lord departing from his temple in Jerusalem on a throne chariot attended by winged creatures riding on the wind. And at that time, the Lord was departing from his people because of their wickedness and idolatry. And like I said, that meant the destruction of the city and of the temple. But now, the Lord has returned to Jerusalem. He has forgiven them. They're going to rebuild the temple. And now it's wickedness. It's evil that's departing. In this anti-ark with kind of like these anti, 
cherubs, like these evil-looking angels, I guess, and put into an even, you could say, an anti-temple in Babylon, which is kind of like the anti-Jerusalem. So again, a lot of symbolism here, but the message is clear. Evil is going to be dealt with. Evil will be eradicated forever. As God's house is built in Jerusalem, and as he returns, wickedness is carried far away to a house that is built for it. All that opposes the Lord is destroyed and driven out from the land. Again, they were going to experience that in part, you know, kind of like a revival, kind of like a, 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 a mini purging. But we know sin is still present. <laughs> and it was for them and it is for us. But one day, this will be true completely and forever. One day, evil will be eradicated forever. When Christ returns and the final judgment takes place, he will eradicate all evil from the world once and for all. All who are opposed to Christ, the Bible says, will be defeated. They will be cast into the lake of fire. And so in that sense, wickedness will be carried away forever. And those of us who are in Christ will be with him forever in a perfect place. With no more sin, no more pain, no more crying, no more death. Think about that, loved ones. Think of that day when Jesus returns. All the lying, all the hate, all the murder... All the sexual perversion that we're bombarded with day after day. All the greed, all the idolatry, all the strife and covetousness and lust will be eradicated forever. No longer will there be be any rebellion against God. No longer will there be grieving of His Spirit. No longer will there be raging against His Son. There will be nothing left that breaks His word. Nothing left that dishonors his name. We believers will get to enjoy Christ and all the saints forever in in a perfect place, free from pain, evil, death. And so that blessed hope, that truth, that sure and certain future that Christ has already secured for us should impact how we live now as we look forward to that day. The Bible makes this very clear, doesn't it? We keep reminding ourselves of those truths, and we pray, even so come, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And as we await his return, as we await that final eradication of sin, what does the Bible call us to do? To turn away from sin. To turn away from wickedness now. I mean, why would we want to be clinging to something that's going to be eradicated, right? Why would we want to be cherishing something That dishonors our Lord. And that's, you know, again, these are encouraging truths. And and kind of a a, a reality that the Bible speaks about and was true in their day, and it's true in every generation, is that the people of God were getting too entrenched in the world. And in Revelation 17, Babylon is described as this great prostitute that seduces people with her glamour, but who in the end turns out to be a hideous beast that destroys. And like I said, the problem in Zechariah's day is the same that we face now, and it's that God's people can become seduced by Babylon. God's people can become seduced by this fallen world and attached to the evil in this world. 
And so again, I'm just, I'm just I'm preaching to myself as I preach to you. As I thought about this vision, as I thought about evil being carried away, I wondered, how would we feel about that? <laughs> now again, praise God, he's going to sanctify us and we're going to be overjoyed. But I meant, in our attitudes right now, how would we care about that? How would we feel about that? I wonder if today all the evil of this world were suddenly carried away, would some of us be sad? <laughs> would some of us like start missing it? Like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Would we be like Lot's wife, you know, looking back and even as the judgment of God is coming? I'm going to miss my social media that fosters idolatry. I'm going to miss all those movies that glamorize sin. I'm going, to, I'm going to miss my lust and my pride and my envy. Oh, may we not be like that, loved ones. May we not be like Lot's wife by the grace of God. Loving and don't, may we not love and cling to the things of this world. Remember, it, they're going to be judged. Instead, let us cling to Christ. Instead, by God's grace, as Hebrews 12 says, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which easily entangles and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith let us not be seduced by the evil in this world remember it's going to be destroyed someday instead let us pursue Christ and his kingdom a kingdom that will last and Christ alone who satisfies so then we come to the last vision in chapter 6, verse 1. We saw uh, the wicked declared guilty, the evil uh, eradicated forever. And now the third heading of this last vision here is final victory accomplished. Look at chapter 6, final victory accomplished. Again, I lifted my eyes, chapter 6, verse 1, and saw, now what does he see? Behold, four chariots came out from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black, the third white horses, the fourth chariot dappled horses, all of them strong. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and said to me, These are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. The chariot with the black horses goes toward the north country, the white goes after them, and the dappled goes toward the south country. When the strong horses came out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. And he said, go, patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. Verse 8, then he cried to me, behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. You say, what is going on here? Well, this vision portrays God's sovereign power. God's sovereign power. The chariots come out from the presence of the Lord. That's what it means when they come from between the mountains. They're coming out from the presence of the Lord. The color of the horses doesn't matter. The, pic the picture is that of the, the armies of the Lord going out and subduing the hostile nations of the world. And, and again, as you're trying to, and I did this this week, right? I'm talking, okay, this one's going this direction. This way. Wait a minute, there's nobody going this way. Remember, you're thinking about it geographically from the perspective of the nation of Israel, Right? Okay, and from the nation of Israel, the, to the west was the sea, to the east was desert, so we, they don't need chariots to go those directions, right? Israel's enemies have, have always either come from the north, and most often from the north, Babylon, then Persia, or the south, like Egypt. And so that's where the chariots go. 
north and south, to subdue the enemies of the Lord. As Psalm 2 describes, the wicked nations have taken their stand against the Lord and his anointed one, the Lord Jesus Christ, but the sovereign Lord in heaven laughs. This final vision pictures the Lord's heavenly army bringing judgment on the nations, particularly Babylon, right? And the north is emphasized with the result that God's spirit is set at rest. And some of you, if you were with us when we studied the first vision, you may remember the first vision of Zechariah. There were four horses that went throughout the earth, kind of similar, but no chariots, because they were just on surveillance. And do you remember what they reported back? They reported back that the nations were at rest, And God's people were not. Remember, that was the first vision. That was when this was all starting, right? That was the situation they were in when Zechariah is writing to them. And we talked about, man, that's not right. You know, God's people are the ones that are suffering and in turmoil. And the nations, the wicked nations are at rest. Ah, how the tables have turned. Now it's different, right? Now it's completely the opposite. This final vision looks ahead to the return of Christ. Because God has announced that he's coming And um, when the Lord comes, then he's going to subdue the hostile nations. He's going to judge them with his heavenly army. And it's God's people who will enjoy everlasting peace and rest in the presence of God. And so this final vision would have, again, encouraged the exiles that God is sovereign over all the nations, even as they struggle in the midst of of, uh, wicked nations. God is on his throne. He is sovereign. His purposes will prevail. And so they could trust God. They could move forward in obedience and rebuild the temple by God's enabling. So again, the New Testament tells us that the Lord Jesus is coming again. He's going to return with the armies of heaven. And again, you read in Revelation and it's the same kind of pictures, right? Same kind of symbolism on on horses, The Lord Jesus will return with the armies of heaven to strike down the rebellious nations. All sin and wickedness will be defeated and thrown into the lake of fire. And Jesus, the Lord Jesus, will reign in victory over the new heaven and the new earth forever. And so that's an encouraging truth we need to be reminded of. We know how this story ends. It ends, as we heard in Sunday school a couple weeks ago, right? Jesus wins. That's the message of the Bible. Jesus wins. Again, I ask you, are you on team Jesus? And I'm not trying to be trite with that. Are you on team Jesus? Because he wins. The Lord Jesus will reign in victory with his people, with those who are united to him in faith over the new heavens and the new earth forever while all his enemies, and I don't say this with any kind of joy in, in their, their fate, while all his enemies suffer forever in hell. Please be on team Jesus. That leads to our final heading today, verses 9 through 15 of chapter 6. This section's not a vision, but it really serves as a climax to the visions. And it, If you're taking notes, you could just write this. Savior, King, ruling. Savior, King, ruling. Zacharias, this is interesting, he's commanded to perform a symbolic act, 
right? So now we're not, no longer in a vision. He's saying, I want you to actually go do this, right? He's, he's commanded to perform a symbolic act with a crown. Look at verse 9. And the word of the Lord came to me, take from the exiles Hadei, Tobijai, Jedidiah, and all who've arrived from Babylon, and go the same day to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Take from them silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder to Halem, Tobajai, Jedidiah, and Hen, the son of Zephaniah. And those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. So Zechariah is to go get gold and silver from these exiles that are named in verse 10. Apparently they recently came from Babylon, so they have gold and silver from Babylon. Zechariah is to go get that gold and silver and use it to make a crown. And then he's to take that crown, and here's where we, you know, if we're familiar with the Old Testament, this should kind of like, what? He's to take that crown and place it on the head of Joshua, the high priest. Wait, 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 what a minute. Wait a minute, what's going on? Crown the high priest? No, 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 under the old covenant you have priests and you have kings. And they're not supposed to be getting in each other's way, right? They need to stay in their lane, so to speak, right? Hmm. They weren't the same person, but there would be one who would be priest and king and prophet for that matter. Crowning the high priest was a symbolic way of pointing ahead to a man who is coming who would be both priest and king. Notice in verse 12, he is identified as the branch, which we've talked about in recent studies. That was a title talking about the coming Messiah, the promised king who would branch out from the the stump of David, from the family tree of David. This was looking ahead. This whole, not only the words, but the symbolic act was looking ahead to Jesus, the son of David, the promised Messiah. And so this morning with those last three visions, we've been focused on Christ's second coming. But really, this last section kind of looks first at his, at his first coming. What did he accomplish as priest and king at his first coming? When he was born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, died in the place of sinners on the cross, and rose again in victory over sin and death on that third day. Through his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus is priest and king. And again, we... We spent a lot of time on this a couple of weeks ago, so I'm just summarizing. But as priest, he serves as a mediator between God and man. He makes full atonement for our sins through the sacrifice of himself once and for all on the cross, reconciling us to our creator. That's his priest, priestly role. He continues to intercede for us now at the Father's right hand. And he's also king, risen and reigning from the Father's right hand. And as we see in verse 13, even now, from his heavenly throne, what did Jesus do? Is one of the first things he did when he ascended to the Father's hand. He sat down, but he sent the Spirit, right? And now through his Spirit, he is growing his kingdom. He's building his temple, the church. That's what verse 13 is talking about. He's saving people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. He's forming them, forming us who are in Christ. We're living stones formed into this one great temple where we worship God and enjoy his presence among us to the glory of his name. 
So here in Zechariah 6, don't you love how kind the Lord is? You know, he's doing something, and then, you know, it takes centuries for, this, you know, and according to his wisdom, it takes centuries for his plan to come to fruition, but he gives them hope. He gives them encouragements. He gives them reminders. And here in Zechariah 6, they're to take this crown. It's on the high priest's head for a little bit, but then they're to take that crown off of his head, place it in the completed temple as a reminder that one day this promised king and priest would come. And praise God, he did come. Jesus did come. And now us today who are on the other side of the cross in the empty tomb, we rejoice in his first coming and we await his second coming. If only we had a symbolic reminder. I'm trying to be funny. I guess I'm not that funny. You guys are kind of like, whatever. We do. Praise God we do, don't we? We're going to do it today. We're going to do it. The Lord's Supper. It reminds us of what he accomplished in his first coming, but it also turns our eyes of faith ahead to his second coming. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Praise God. And so it's a joy to do that with you this morning. As we take the Lord's Supper together, Christian, let it remind you that Christ has paid for your sins. Let it remind you that Jesus is reigning now in heaven. No matter how out of control this world seems, remember that God is in control. He is sovereign. His purposes will prevail. Christ is on his throne and he is coming again. King Jesus is coming back. Christ is building his church right now. So like Zacharias hears, let us trust God. Let us trust God. Let us live by the enabling of the Spirit in joyful obedience to Jesus, seeking to make disciples. We get the amazing privilege of being tools that God uses to build his church, to build his temple. So as we take the Lord's Supper, be encouraged. Jesus is coming again. We will be with him in his kingdom of peace. With no more pain, no more evil, no more death, no more sin, forever and ever. Amen. If I could have the men come forward, please, who are going to serve us this morning. As we prepare to take the Lord's Supper again, this is, this is something the Lord Jesus gave us. And we read about it in, well, he instituted it on, in the upper room on the night that he was arrested, the night before he died on the cross, establishing their, uh, the new covenant. And then we read about it as well in the letter to the Corinthians. And so the Bible gives us some important instructions about taking the Lord's Supper. This is serious what we're about to do. It's a, it's a time of celebration for God's people. It is a time for us to reflect and, and you know, confess any sins. Like, like I said, maybe there's areas where you're clinging to the sin of this world, the sin that's going to be judged. May you use this time to confess and, and ask for God's help to, to let go of that. But I, I really want to stress this morning that the, the Bible teaches us that the Lord's Supper is only to be taken by Christians. Okay? Because it is, it is for those who are in the new covenant. It's for those who, by God's grace, are united to Christ. It's for those who have publicly identified with Jesus as Lord and Savior. Those who are longing for his return. Those who, again, by God's grace, have bowed the knee to King Jesus. 
It symbolizes his death and resurrection. So it's important not to take it as a, as a mockery or anything. If, if, you're, if today you don't know the Lord, I've been praying for you and others have been as well that even today would be the day that God would open your heart and you would turn to, to Christ in faith. But if you don't know the Lord, please just let the elements pass by. We're not going to single you out. We're not going to embarrass you and draw any attention. But just, just let them pass by and just, just pray and ask God to show you who Jesus is.